0: You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Tricia Johnson. Each week you'll hear compelling conversations from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a non-partisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. On this episode, Should We Genetically Design Our Babies? Nita Farahani and Marcy Darnowsky discuss the pros and cons. Farahani is a professor of law and philosophy and director of the Science and Society Initiative at Duke University. In 2010, President Obama appointed her to the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues. Darnovsky is executive director at the Center for Genetics and Society. She speaks and writes widely on human biotechnologies, focusing on their social justice, human rights, health equity, and public interest implications. The discussion of designer babies often revolves around gender or hair color. But as Farahani and Darnovsky explore, the medical debate is far more complicated. Should we screen embryos for disease? Should we make genetic modifications? These considerations raise ethical concerns and call into question the validity of surrounding research. The lack of regulation and oversight make this particular biotechnology frightening to some, while the potential for disease-eradicating techniques excites others. But how far is too far? What are the major scientific and ethical hurdles to assuage the skeptics? James Bennett, editor of The Atlantic, moderates the conversation. Here are Marcy Darnowski, Nita Farahani, and James Bennett.
1: As Bill said, our session is provocatively titled, Should We Design Our Babies? And I think a lot of us lay people approach this question with um, profoundly mixed emotions, uh, a sense of uh, excitement on the one hand about the new possibilities of science um, of genetic interventions and therapies of one sort or another um, to help combat disease um, diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's Uh, and on the other hand a degree of concern if not outright fear that our scientific advances may be racing ahead of our social and ethical considerations you don't have to look that far back into our own history to be reminded of the chilling possibilities of interfering in genetic lines. Um, it was, we were discussing this earlier, it was actually the son of one of the founders of the Atlantic, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., one of our most eminent Supreme Court jurists who wrote the majority opinion in 1927 in Buck v. Bell, um, ruling uh, that it was okay to proceed with the forced sterilization of a young woman um, on the ground, as he put it, that three generations of imbeciles is enough. So we have two really fantastic panelists today to discuss the proposition that's before us um, uh, from very different points of view, although with some, I think we may find some areas of convergence, I hope, We're over, the, over okay. the course of this debate or, or, or conversation. Marcy Darnowsky is executive uh, director of the Center for Genetics and Society is a nonprofit based in Berkeley mm-hmm. um, that tries to encourage responsible uses and regulation of uh, human genetic and reproductive technology. She speaks and writes, and writes widely on this subject, focusing on the implications for human rights and health um, and the public interest. Uh, she's also co-editor of the anthology Beyond Bioethics Towards a New Biopolitics, which will be coming out from the University of California. When? Next year. Next year? Yeah. Okay. Nita Farahani is Professor of Law and Philosophy at Duke, and she also directs that university's Institute for Genome Sciences and Policy. By appointment of President Obama, she now serves on the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues. She's an elected member of the American Law Institute, a board member of the International Neuroethics Society, and co-editor-in-chief and founder of the Journal of Law and Biosciences. Um, These two are extremely well equipped to debate this question. And Nita, I I thought I might start with you. Um, Again, the proposition before us is, should we design our babies? To some extent, we're already doing it. And um, I'd love to hear, again, for a broad audience, if you could set the table a little bit about what the science is already leading us towards and, and whether or not you find it concerning?
2: Sure, so um, I think it's right to say that for a very long time we have been in some way and in some fashion designing our children. Whether that's who we choose as a potential mate, um, the person that we choose to have children with that has Uh, A particular selection bias for what kinds of reproduction there would be Um, and uh, we've done this over a long period of time people have had abortions based on particular types of birth defects or birth anomalies that they may have discovered Um, and more recently genetic selection has become a lot easier so whether you're doing something like in vitro fertilization when you can already do a lot of genetic testing before implantation or transfer of an embryo Um, Already, you can do things like whole genome sequencing of embryos to select which one you might actually uh, transfer uh, in order to produce a a live birth. Um, But you can also do things like, um, even if you choose not to do in vitro fertilization, a tremendous amount of genetic testing of both parents to try to optimize what it is that you get as a result. So for example, for diseases like Tay-Sachs um, and other kind of commonly known conditions, both parents are often tested um, and they're, they're counseled if they have uh, the likelihood of having a child who has a particular uh, problem and then given that particular problem, they may choose to do early screening when they're pregnant and decide whether or not to carry forward um, the child. And one more, one beyond that is that if you discover that both parents have um, problems that you are certain you don't want to pass on to children, you may choose to have an egg donor or a sperm donor. And there are a lot of companies that offer sperm donation where you can learn hundreds of different traits about the potential donor and select based on the traits in order to have the most optimal uh, and healthiest or even potentially other traits that you find attractive uh, offspring. So. There's a lot of these technologies that are already being used, that have already been unregulated, that have already been adopted throughout society. And whether you kind of think of this as a soft selection from mates through a kind of a harder selection, through termination and through genetic selection, we're doing a lot of these things. I think we're on the cusp of being able to do even more, which is what a lot of people are frightened about, but it comes with a long history of being able to do a lot of different things to select our offspring.
1: And do you see any problem with the sorts of things that are now being done?
2: Um, Do I see any problem? So I I see some problems in the fact that a lot of these techniques are not well known or understood by people in society, um, that most of this goes unregulated and sort of under the radar so that people aren't aware of it. And I think we need to have a better understanding of how we're already designing future generations. Um, but I think that information is empowering and that people should be empowered with information and that they should have the ability to learn a lot of information, decide what's right for them in terms of having children and how to optimize having the healthiest possible children. So I think these advances are terrific advances, but they come with some concerns that I have about dis, uh, the lack of regulation. But, but I'll say, It's very different than the history we come from, which is the early American eugenics movement, which was state-sponsored selection of children and state-sponsored programs to try to get people, like in the case of Buck v. Bell, to either coercively sterilize people or to um, select particular types of offspring. These are individual people making individual choices about how to have healthy children. It's very different than state-sponsored eugenics.
1: Okay, Marcy, to you then, what, what, is, what could be wrong with having more information in order to optimize the health of, of your offspring?
3: Well, of course, we all want healthy children. And I think um, actually referring to what we do to have healthy children as designer babies is, is wrong, and it's actually kind of offensive. So I think that the kinds of technologies that um, Nita was just talking about do raise a lot of questions, but I agree that we should have full information. And I think one of the problems is not just that these technologies are unregulated and that people don't understand their increasing power, but that uh, partly because we're in an unregulated commercial marketplace and the tests, the new tests that can actually sequence in principle the entire genome of a fetus very early in pregnancy or an embryo if you go through in vitro fertilization, these um these are being marketed and sold professional medical organizations are saying um, wow these are important technologies but let's make sure they're not adopted as routine parts of prenatal care because they give women and their partners so much information that we don't know the meaning of that it it is more likely to lead to uh, emotional distress and real harm than to good so that's the medical about I think four different professional medical associations in the last year have issued guidelines like that, but the guidelines are kind of being run over by the commercial forces. And I think we do want to ask, uh, where do we draw lines? And I do think that those should be individual decisions, but fully, fully informed ones. So where I would certainly want, not myself, want to have a child with Tay-Sachs, and I think most people would not want to. There are some people who feel that they would welcome a child with Down syndrome into their family. And families who don't know anything about Down syndrome and have not met children with Down syndromes or families raising a child with Down syndrome, they should be given the opportunity to have that kind of full information. But these selection technologies, and even more so the idea that we're designing future children by selecting mates. I I don't know about you, but um, I was more interested in, does he screw the ketchup bottle (laughs) on tightly? Um, I think there are a lot of differences between the soft selection and even the hard selection, as you put it. Then, uh, that's one thing. Another thing is actually manipulating with um, very new and experimental genetic techniques, manipulating the genes that we pass on to future generations, to to our children and to all future generations, because those kind of genetic changes would uh, be represented in every cell in the child's body and in all subsequent progeny. So that is a very weighty question. It's been recognized as a very weighty question for decades. And in more than 40 countries around the world, um, the concerns about that have been codified as laws that say, we want to develop selection technologies and use them appropriately. We want to develop genetic engineering technologies that will help people who are sick and treat them. We want to use them cautiously, and the caution you know, is, is important. Uh, we want to develop all those tools of human genetics, but we want to draw a bright line and not be developing inheritable human genetic modifications. Or sometimes you'll hear the term germline genetic modifications. And the reasons for that are uh, several. We, can, we should get into them. Safety reasons and social reasons. But, um, Several dozen countries have this as law, and there are international treaties, including the uh, European Union has the Convention on Biomedicine and Human Rights. So there, this was considered in the early 90s as a human rights issue. And that's a, uh, an approach Let's, that you know, hasn't been very much present in our discussion
1: in this country. I'd like to come back to the question of the regulatory framework a little later in the conversation, mm-hmm. both domestically and globally. But I'd like to state, For a moment with the question of where the science is and where it's taking us. Um, Nita, you referred a moment ago to the fact that we're only becoming more sophisticated about the sorts of practices that are already underway. Marcy was talking about the commercial incentives that are kind of pushing us towards um, using more and more of of those sorts of practices. So what is next? What's coming down the pike?
2: Well, before we go to next, let me just say things might be a little bit different now in mate selection for some people. I'll say that my husband, who's sitting in the front here, um, I think it was our fourth date that we compared 23 andme me genetic profiles and carrier status um, and we were both actually quite interested in that, knowing that we wanted to have children, and knowing that we were interested in the genetic uh, predispositions we might share. And so I think you know it, it's a conversation some people are having. We're a little strange, I admit, but um, we embrace our strangeness and, and recognize that. Is this
1: like a romantic candlelit dinner? No, or no, or no, it was just like the, here's my profile, where's yours. No, yeah. was <laughs> it was <what>? just <laughs> uh,
2: you know it was just it was sitting uh, you know over a glass of wine and you know just sharing each other's. Um, uh, access to looking at the profiles, but you know, in, in seriousness, there are websites matching people based on genetic information. There are a lot of people who are starting to recognize that there are some predispositions that you should be aware of, even if it might not lead to a different mate selection, it might lead to different choices in how you have children. But where we are with the technology right now, so um, there are these possibilities right now. You can order sperm from the internet with knowing 500 different traits uh, about the potential you know person. There are a lot of things that you can do to make choices and. That may be designed differently in the way you think about it. It's the way that I think about it. It's very much the thought about how do you ensure you have healthy children. Um, we are on the cusp of being able to cross over the line between what is just selection to being able to make modifications to the germ line, things that are heritable. And there's there's two different things you should sort of visualize. Start with a woman's egg. And you've got the egg. and In the center of it, you have the nucleus of the egg, and about 99.9% of the traits that she, the mother, is going to pass on are located in the nucleus. Surrounding the nucleus, there's something called mitochondria, and the mitochondria provides the fuel for the cell. It's the energy source. It comes originally from bacterium, um, and you, you, you need healthy mitochondria in order to have healthy division of cells and healthy brains and healthy organs and functions. Where we are right now is nowhere close to being able to tamper with the nucleus of the cell, which is what a lot of the kind of scary genetic modification is that people think about. But already in some limited trials um, in the UK, as well as here, before the FDA put a stop to it years ago, there have been trials in animals and a very limited number in humans that have looked to see whether or not you could take a woman who has unhealthy mitochondria, which leads to either multiple miscarriages or really severely affected children who most often suffer terribly or die. And we're talking about five to 7,000 births per year, not a huge number of women, but the women who are affected are affected repeatedly with, with childbirth. You could take out that unhealthy mitochondria and from a donor egg, put in healthy mitochondria. Or you could do this after it's been fertilized with sperm where you swap it out. The nuclear DNA remains unaffected, but the mitochondria is healthy, which enables that woman plus her partner um, to have healthy genetic children. So the FDA has just considered this. The UK has had a very long study to consider it, and many people think they're about to give the green light to move ahead with this type of genetic modification. But as Marcy points out, there have been conventions in the bright line that we've maintained up until today has been, you can do selection, you can even do hard selection, but you can't do modification. This is a form of modification that I'm supportive of us moving forward on limited clinical trials on, um, but it's crossing a new line, and it's a new line that we need to have a broad societal conversation about to understand what the implications of doing so are.
1: Let's stay with this question of mitochondrial manipulation. The effect is you wind up with an offspring with the genetic material of three parents. I wouldn't call it parents because parents right. has sorry. a very different connotation. Three different people contribute the yes, genetic three material to this, to this offspring. So Marcy, um, are we actually having the conversation right now that Nita referred to um, the FDA hearing? Is that mm-hmm. is that a, a sufficient airing of the concerns around this? And what do you see is wrong with this technology? Mm-hmm.
3: Um, Well, like with the more extreme technologies, I think there's safety issues and there's social issues. So um, the FDA did hold a hearing about it, and their mandate was to really look at the safety and efficacy. That's what the FDA does as an agency. And the panel of 20-some independent scientists um, heard the presentation from the people who are developing these technologies, both in the UK and in the US. They um, presumably had read all the papers. And they raised so many scientific and technical and safety and health concerns that um, you know, it certainly surprised me, who had been very concerned already, that um, there were just on every level about whether the evidence that does exist is sufficient to move ahead. Someone commented that if this was a drug that was being evaluated, the level of evidence that we have would be far from sufficient to, what are the to move clinical ahead. clinical
1: trials in, in Britain that Nita just referred there to? There are no
3: like, clinical trials uh, in Britain. And, um, so, so
2: there were clinical trials that were done in the U.S. There are several different ways you can accomplish this technology. One is you could take an unhealthy egg and you could inject healthy mitochondria, which means you still have a high level of abnormality. It's just injecting healthy. You could take the nucleus and put it into a healthy one. Um, So there's several different techniques. The earlier technique, which was to just inject healthy mitochondria into um, a pre-existing cell called cytoplasmic transfer. Um, There were 32 uh, children who were born of that technology here in the United States. Um, Because of privacy concerns, those children haven't been followed over their lifetime. So we unfortunately don't have data. But from everything we understand from the younger um, years of it that they followed them, they were healthy. But we should have more concerns about that technique than we would about the newer techniques because future generations could end up with abnormalities. Since you didn't cure the abnormality, you still have a high degree of abnormality. You just have some healthy ones. There have been, there were also a number of, um, there were nine, no, there were nine nine cases that were done at NYU using the modern technology um, by one of the leading scientists in this area in the world. Um, And they had several, healthy pregnancies, but none that were actually brought to term because of other complications. And then they were shut down by the FDA. So there have been some limited trials that have been done on this, but nothing beyond that. So
3: So neither of these were really clinical trials. They were fertility doctors going ahead in unauthorized ways with these experiments. And the children that were born, as you mentioned, Nita, haven't been followed up. And that in some of the pregnancies that were tracked, there were way elevated rates of chromosomal anomalies. Turner syndromes in two of the fetuses. There was
2: not a higher level relative to the population and That's relative to higher. the expected, uh, expected let, population let, of IVFs. Anyway, problem.
3: the FDA um, said to the people, if you want a clinical trial, apply to us for the authorization and we'll consider it. And the uh, people who were in charge decided that they didn't want to go through that trouble. So that is what happened. The technology was left for a while. And now people are coming back to it. and. Um, there are slight variations on the different methods that are being used in the UK, in New York, and in Oregon. The Oregon uh, team has three healthy monkeys that are, I think, three or four years old now. They have not reproduced. And they've not reached the age um, at which sometimes mitochondrial, serious mitochondrial disease actually develops. So, And, and then in some other model, animal models, in mice models and in other models, there have been observed real problems with. Um, uh, longevity, fertility decline, cognitive issues uh, to the extent that you can test those in mice. And so, and, and, and some of the human zygotes that were created with the method that the people doing the monkeys used show real um, abnormalities and they don't know why. So, it's really early in the development of this technique. And, um, you know, the FDA panel, they decided that it was premature to consider going ahead to clinical trials. Whereas situation is different in, situation is different in the uk and we'll see what they do actually the hfea says it may require further tests mm-hmm. um that's been a it's a really interesting process to look at and to look at you know some of the uh backers the financial backers of the research and so on but it's a it's a long complicated story but um i think that we we do need to acknowledge that one of the reasons for concern is, okay, is the benefit of going ahead with this technology, how does that weigh against the possible risks, not only to the children that would be born, but also to society? Because um, if it, it, we cross that bright line, um, I think the question is, can we? Can we cross that line, carve out a narrow exception, which is what they are trying to do in the UK, Car- carve out a narrow exception that says, OK, maybe we're going to do this kind of modification that does go down through the generations. But we're not going to go further than that. We're not going to modify genes in the nucleus of the cell that actually more directly, much more directly, control the traits that we would pass down our children. And the concern about that is that we don't want to start down this road where uh, the idea of who's, you know, of breeding better babies takes on a new life. We did that in the last century. We were trying to decide who's fit and who's unfit to reproduce. And um, the lessons that we, I think we have to really carefully consider the lessons from that terrible chapter in US and world history, Um, and be very aware that um, even though the science then was flawed, the science today is in very infant stages. We're learning a lot. we're learning it really rapidly, but it was just a few years ago that scientists thought that huge, vast swathes of the genome that was non-coding genes was junk DNA. We don't think that anymore, that, but that was only a few years ago. We're very much in the experimental stages of a lot of these things, and we also don't want to introduce a social dynamic in which, if it works, you know, if it doesn't work, that's one is situation that we could look at if it does work, are we going to be on a road to, you know, think either producing or thinking we've produced babies who are more intelligent, have perfect pitch, greater athletic ability, whatever it is. And I think one of the questions about where the science is at is to really take a serious look at what can we, what could we do now or in the near future.
1: So, Nita, I want to give you the chance to respond to anything in what you just heard that you want to talk about, but I'd also <laughs> like you, to, of course, the answer to move us towards the question of whether the regulatory framework we've got now and the regulators yeah. are adequate, because I was really interested in what you said about this NYU study. Is that how it works today? These guys just start experimenting until the FDA catches them and asks them to stop.
2: Well, let me respond and get to yeah. there, which is, um, so I think, I think Marcy's absolutely right to focus on the safety. We should be concerned about the safety, but we also have to recognize that there are risks in everything we do. There's risks and natural reproduction, if you look at the rate of um, genetic abnormalities, genetic defects that result from natural reproduction, it's actually quite high. If you look at IVF and you try to apply the same standard that we apply right now for mitochondrial transfer to IVF, we never would have permitted IVF to go forward and IVF has enabled a lot of couples to have healthy children as a result. Um, And I think the opportunity for people to have healthy genetic children of their own is one that we shouldn't discount so easily. We should enable people and empower people to make individual choices to have healthy genetic children while recognizing that we have a duty to safeguard future generations. And so we have to look at safety. We have to be willing to look very carefully at it. The mitochondrial debate is a little bit of a red herring from my perspective. What it is is a small population of individuals who are severely affected by this disease, this mitochondrial abnormality, which severely affects their offspring. But it's really an opportunity for us to have a conversation about whether or not we think as a society we can draw reasonable lines around particular technologies rather than trying to throw out everything because we're too afraid to take steps forward. So, you know, should we be tinkering with nuclear DNA? No, we're not ready for that. We're far from it scientifically. But is it the case that there may be some genetic modifications that we have enough safety information about that are limited enough that we can comfortably say, as a society, we can draw a line here without thinking that that's going to open the floodgates to every other technology? I have faith in society. I have faith in the public. I have faith in our democratic deliberative process. I also have faith in couples who are deciding to have children, the very few of them are going into the doctor's office and saying, I want blue eyes, or I want fast twitch muscle fibers in order to have a world-class athlete. They're saying, I want a healthy child, and I want a healthy child who is a genetic child of my own. And I think enabling people to make that choice is one that modern technology has empowered and made possible, and that we should encourage the development of these technologies, ensuring that they're safe. With respect to the regulatory framework and NYU, It isn't clear who has the regulatory authority in this country to oversee all of the different reproductive technology clinics that have cropped up. The FDA has decided it has some jurisdiction in this area. The UK has um, very wisely created something called the HFEA, which is the Human Fertilization Embryology Authority, that oversees all of these different types of reproductive technologies and enables them to have a much more public and systematic dialogue of oversight. In this country, we're so terrified of the divisiveness of the abortion debate, coloring everything that we talk about in this domain, that the FDA dared get into this territory but states don't want to, politicians don't want to, Congress doesn't want to. They think this is a political nightmare they'd rather stay away from. And in the absence of regulation, you have private universities going through their institutional review boards, which the NYU study did, getting authority in order to move forward, but without having any sort of centralized oversight. So I think we really need to get past this being just an abortion debate and recognize that this is a pervasive set of technologies that we really need to bring to the light and start to develop something that's a lot more specialized than the FDA, that is designed well to deal with devices and drugs and food, but not designed well to deal with this incredibly complicated and rapidly advancing field.
1: And I'm going to open it up to you guys in just a few minutes. Uh-huh. So please start getting your questions yeah. ready. But Marcy, is, what do you So
3: yeah, I agree with part of that. We do need a much, much better sister of regulation <laughs> um, than we have in the United States. And uh, um, we're going to need
1: Congress to, to get there.
3: We may need Congress to get there, and it seems politically almost impossible, but uh. we don't have any other alternative. We really don't. Um, and, but I think the question that we have to ask is, given what we have now, which is that the, the market rules, that um, re- responsible scientists with local IRBs or irresponsible scientists can move forward with what they want to move forward, that is part of the consideration that we have to keep in mind as we evaluate what we're going to do in this country and what we're going to support, frankly, in other countries as well, because there's a lot of back and forth pressure. If the UK agrees to this, it will create pressure on the FDA and vice versa. So I think also important is with this particular, in a way it is a red herring, because the number of women is tiny. It's tiny, the um, chief of the The chief medical officer of the HFEA that Nita referred to said that maybe there would be five to ten women in the United United Kingdom who would even be candidates for considering this because most instances, the vast majority, 85% is the number typically used, of of people who are suffering from mitochondrial disease. Their, Their disease is caused by mutations in the nucleus as well as mutations in the mitochondria these techniques would offer nothing to them. The other really important piece of this this technique, the three-person IVF or whatever you want to call it, it's really nuclear genome transfer. You're not really just switching mitochondrial around. But the other really important thing to consider is that women who want to have, these tiny number of women who want to have a child who is healthy and who is genetically related, even they have other options. They could do the embryo selection technology, not pre-implantation, all genetic, so, so da, almost women all affected. of that tiny number, unless you have a situation in which all of the mitochondria in a woman are mutated, those women would not be. But that's a tiny proportion of the 10 to 15 that the chief medical officer in the UK said would be candidates for this procedure. So we have to weigh that benefit to those women, which is a real benefit, against the risks to the future children and against the risks to society of blurring this bright line that has been accepted around the world as a one that we shouldn't cross right now.
2: So if it's but, such a tiny number, how is blurring the line for five people gonna suddenly lead us to do how. genetic modification here's of the how. nucleus because and massive genetic engineering of offspring? Because this has become like
3: a, a holy grail of biomedical research, and it creates a really um, hothouse atmosphere, I think, that stands in the way of, I think, reasonable evaluation and assessment of this particular technique. And in this house atmosphere, we will have headlines. We have had headlines. We had the front page of the New York Times Magazine last Sunday about this technique. And once it's approved, people whose children are sick and suffering from mitochondrial disease that aren't even going to be possibly helped by this technique will say, well, look, you approved genetic, inheritable genetic modification for mitochondrial DNA, why shouldn't I have genetic modification for nuclear DNA?
2: Because it's a totally different technology and we are years and light years away from the type of technological interventions that are possible. We can't do a petri dish on the society and extrapolate from what we know. So I get to respond a little, which is the idea that the public is incapable of making any more discriminating choices besides there's one bright line and once we set it, we can never move it no matter what new technological advances are, sells the public short. I agree sensationalist headlines are a problem and we have to address them but reason deliberative democracy enables us to get past reactionary lines and to draw new ones based on new information and new technology
1: let's say that we live for purposes of argument we lived in a country that had reasonable deliberative democracy Um, (laughs) and that in fact Congress could get past the politics of abortion and create a really tight sensible regulatory um, framework or an agency capable of creating such a framework and the u.s you know establishes the bright line that you both have endorsed Um marcy referred a moment ago to international competition around this question and what i don't see is how even if we put that in place why particularly wealthy people wouldn't be able to fly to another country that didn't have such controls yes. and get the genes for intelligence or quick twitch right. muscles or you know the ability to fly, whatever it is they're (laughs) after. That would be a nice one, I wouldn't mind that one. Um,
2: Well, okay, so I think that's a very fair point, which is we live in a much more global, international environment, and medical tourism is already a big problem. So people um, of means travel from one country to another based on the technologies and the healthcare systems that are available in another country. Already you have people from the United States who who have means traveling to other countries for surrogacy because it's far less expensive to have a surrogate in another country or it's far less expensive to have in vitro fertilization and there are other options available to them there, like if your clinic won't do gender selection or if it won't do whole genome sequencing, there are other ones that actually will provide that technology. In China, uh, there's a state-sponsored scientific organization that's been set up to start to try to figure out um, if they can find genetic contributions to intelligence so that they can either select for in future generations these genetic contributions to intelligence or modify genetically offspring in order to enhance intelligence in their offspring. This is an international problem, Um, it's an international conversation. Either what's going to happen is we're going to take a restrictive model where we don't engage the rest of the world and people of means will travel to other countries, widening the gap even further between people of means and people without. Or um, we need to engage in a global dialogue about this and figure out how we can try to cooperatively come up with standards that we're more comfortable with in a global community. That's hard, it's unlikely to be successful. There will still be outlier scientists who will be doing science, but if we can create some policies that we're comfortable with at an international basis, it'll at least set some norms to allow us to move forward. Well, thank you.
3: I think you've just made my case, actually. I think the case is that we really need regulation and we really need bright lines. Otherwise, what we risk is Introducing new kinds of inequality into the world, either based on what we can actually accomplish through the genetics, or what we think, and we're going to tell each other that we've accomplished through the genetics. And yeah, I think you know we can extrapolate from the surrogacy and IVF and medical tourism that you mentioned that people will do what they, wealthy people will do what they can to make avail themselves of these technologies. And one of the strong advocates of going full force toward germline engineering, Lee Silver, who. You, were, you partnered with in that PBS debate, Yes. Um, Lee Silver, he projects and, says it as, and sees as inevitable a world in which we use these technologies, and what will result is genetic castes. And he says, yeah, we'll have the 10% of the population. He calls them the gen rich. He's coined little names for the different populations. And the gen rich will rule the world. They'll be in control of business and academia and government. And the others, the 90%, he calls them the naturals, will sleep, sweep the floor. And he says the gen-rich and the naturals, they wouldn't even think of mating with each other. They would, it would be like a human reproducing with a chimpanzee. I mean, it's like that, that was what he projected as inevitable okay, so if we allow unfair. this kind of inheritable a genetic unfair. modification to that's, go forward. It's a very unfair so we, want to we want to be careful <laughs> about blurring these, this bright line that has been established. We want to be careful looking at the history. We want to be careful understanding the policy regime, and we want to be careful looking at the scientific and technical evidence.
2: So I have to defend Please. Lee for just a moment, because I think that that's, this is a, a very prominent scientist who's done pretty extraordinary work that's really helped advance the conversation. Um, and I think denigrating him in that way is, is really unfair. What he The point he has tried to make is the more we treat technology itself as evil rather than misuse of it, the more we end up with these different castes, that we have to actually recognize that technology has enabled a lot of progress in the world, particularly medical technology. And if we deal with it in this simply, like, no, we're terrified of what's going to happen, so we're going to have fear mongering, the people who aren't afraid, the people who are the technophiles, may adopt it, and they will end up with different segments of the population. Um, And that's problematic. And he recognizes that being the problem, not just that we should embrace all technology. He recognizes safety issues, efficacy issues, social policy issues and he believes and in his own practice running a corporation called Gene Peaks right now as well which enables this testing of sperm so that you can have five to five hundred different traits chosen from your sperm. He recognizes that um, right now we're in an era where people are using this information to try to have healthier children to reduce The fact that so many many people are putting off child rearing until later ages, which increases birth defects and increases risk, that new technology is enabling people to have healthy genetic children later in life, and that that's something that he wants to enable people to do. I think that's wonderful, and I think rather than just adopting a bright line, I'm terrified of technology and don't want to have to cross that line, I'd rather us have a meaningful conversation about... Where is it reasonable to draw the line in light of advancing technology? How can we incorporate new information, and how can we ensure people have all of the information to make sensible choices for themselves? Marcia, real I want to hit... quick.
1: Okay, real quick. Okay. Um, you want to say you're not terrified of technology?
2: <laughs> Adopting a
3: bright line doesn't mean you're terrified of technology. It means that there are certain misuses and abuses that we want to say we're not going to do, and in a mature, deliberative democracy, which we aspire to. That's the kind of policies that we would set.
1: All right, I'd like to open it up to the audience for questions. There are microphones in the back of the room, so why don't we we go over here, if we can. Please wait for the mic, because it's being recorded. Yes, and I'd love to, if you could, please keep it to a question. Um, Thank you.
2: Hi, Um, you only
0: mentioned this briefly, but where does gender selection fit into this greater debate?
2: So that's already happening. Um, you know, there are some clinics who choose not to do it. There's some that do. You less often in this country, although in other countries you do um, see people who are choosing to terminate based on gender. But you often see balancing choices in families. And what we've seen in this country is that many people are making a choice for second children to have a balanced family from their perspective. So if they have one gender child already, they're choosing through IVF for Um, generally through IVF to have a second child who is of the other gender, but it's a real concern and one that's already um, having problems in other countries where, you know, males are favored to females, and if you have one child that you can have, people are going to choose to have the male rather than female. So um, there is some skewing of gender in those societies that we see already, and um, it suggests that selection itself can have a significant implication on future generations as well.
1: Marcy, you want to weigh in on yeah,
2: that? Yeah,
3: no, that's yeah. very true. I mean, in countries, we hear about gender selection mostly in China and in India. Unfortunately, it's spreading uh, as far west as the Caucasus. Albania, there's now skewed sex ratios, and it's actually in, not in China and in India. It's a crisis. I mean, it's so, the gender ratios are so skewed that women are being trafficked as brides because a cohort of uh, men are coming of age and want to marry, and there are no girls for them to marry. So it's really quite, quite bad in those other countries, and um, I think in this country, you know, it's it's it is offered by some fertility clinics. Um, I think many people choose, you know, for all kinds of reasons. Some reasons maybe I would be sympathetic to. Some reasons like I want a daughter who I can play Barbie with. I wouldn't be as sympathetic to. Um, and I'm I more concerned. I am concerned about it. I'm concerned about normalizing it and legitimizing it for the rest of the world. I'm concerned about. Uh, rigidifying sexual gender binaries in sex selection. Um, But I'm even more concerned about the fertility clinic like the one in L.A. that for a while was offering a program uh, for choosing hair color, eye color, and skin color, and I think that the doctor was doing it in part to drum up business, Um, and he did get enough pushback that he said he was suspending the program for now. But, you know, this is the kind of thing that we are going to see, and we are, we are going to have to have a cultural and social response to, um, in some cases, and in other cases, a policy response.
1: But just a yes or no, would either of you advocate a law banning sex selection?
3: I would not, because no, okay, I wouldn't. think it please. interferes too much with, um, it, that, that one I do think would risk undermining women's okay. access to uh, abortion rights.
1: Okay. Can we go over here, please? Is that, can you get the mic there? Thank you.
4: So I'll just start by saying I don't think there's anything in life where you can draw a clear line. There's a lot of gray zones, and I see children with parents who want them to be very different than they are, and everybody's suffering. So I know this is not the right statement, but I'm just going to say it provocatively. Why not let people have what they want? The child will be happier, the parent will be happier, and people will select because they want a creative kid, or they'll select because they want a, a perfectly tall, blonde kid who looks like they came from Minnesota. I'm just being, I'm not, you know, I'm not being quite serious here, but
1: yeah, this I, sort of strict like, line. That sounds like a question to Marcy, actually. Uh, it's a question
2: to both of us. Oh, so I list. think we'll, we'll both respond, okay, but Marcy, respond. please go ahead why
1: first. Not? Yeah. You take the-
3: yeah, why not do designer babies? I think not do designer babies, because we live in a society where that could go in a couple different directions. One direction it could go in is only, the one we talked about before, only the wealthy have access to this technology we come to the gen-rich and the uh, naturals, as Lee Silver did say and continues to say, is inevitable in his point of view. Another technology, another possible scenario is that hmm, maybe a lot of people will be able to afford it. The prices will come down, you know, be like, uh, you know, iPhones and lots of people will be able to report, uh, re- afford it. Then I think you get in a situation of like a, um, an arms race of genetic upgrades so that you're going to want to have the ones that the neighbor has, or the other kid in the private school. And it just escalates beyond control. This is the scenario that Bill McKibben actually wrote about in his book on these issues called Enough Staying Human in an Engineered Age. And I think you know there's, all, and there's other scenarios. There is the Gattaca scenario, which is kind of a combination of those two in a way. It's not, it's not and, and, and this, is a, this is one of those rare situations in which there is a bright line in which there are many gray areas having to do with um, genetic and reproductive technologies, but here's one where we can draw, because of the technology and the science, and because of the policy that has already been set in place as precedence in all these dozens of countries, we actually can draw a bright line, and I think we should. Yeah, so, um, why
2: so why not? Uh, I think I'm a lot more comfortable with we should enable people to make choices, and I would enable them to make a v- vast array of choices. Um, and I think, it's unlikely to lead to something like state-sponsored eugenics because private choices by private individuals are going to vary. Uh, you know, if I'm going to choose the hair color and the eye color of my child, I'm not going to have them look like a Nordic Swede. I'm going to have them look a lot more like me, uh, which looks anything but a Nordic Swede. And so I think those private choices by private individuals are going to vary. We should have some concerns about races to the top or the bottom, but um, we're a society and uh, a species that is about advancement, that is about improving the species. And there's a balance. Um, and we have to find that right balance, but I think we're nowhere close to tipping over into a dangerous side of it. Um, So that being said, the kind of bright line, whether or not that will enable it, selection technology is getting better every day. And right now, the rate-limiting step is being able to harvest eggs from a woman. At most, in a good cycle of IVF, you're gonna get about 20 eggs from a woman, which doesn't lead to that many fertilized embryos that you can select between if you're looking at them. But in the near future, Um, And already shown in mice, you can take a skin cell, and you can turn it into a pluripotent stem cell, which can then be induced to become an egg cell, and you can produce hundreds if not thousands of egg cells, which you can fertilize with sperm, do whole genome sequencing, and pick from your thousands of different fertilized embryos to decide which one has the optimal traits. So is that more efficient than simply modifying it to get the outcome that you want? And is it going to really lead society to a very different place if the fear is that we're gonna have this extreme society with genetic perfection that's being sought, Um, having 8,000 different embryos that you get to choose between is gonna lead us very much to the same place. So I don't think that, I think this is a line drawing without a difference and that the better conversation to be having is where within the gray zones should we be drawing lines until we feel like we're comfortable as a society to move forward.
1: Thank you. Uh, Paul Anderson, I write a column in the Aspen Times. the Aspen idea is sort of a facetious concept, but it's, it, was, it was born in 1949 in the Gurdjieff Bicentennial here. Um, the idea is to nurture the whole person in Aspen, body, mind, and soul. Uh, I can see how the body and mind are implicated here in this discussion. What about the soul?
2: Go ahead, Nina. <laughs> Um, I'm going to interpret that question slightly differently which is, um, which builds a little bit on the question before. So genetics doesn't determine a person's identity and it doesn't determine a person's personality. It it provides us a set of predispositions and the combination of environment and um, genes and some special sauce that we don't understand anywhere close to yet that gives us our conscious experiences um, come to define how we understand ourselves, how we relate to other people in the world. And one fear that many people have, which I think is a reasonable one, is over-determination from a genetic perspective. We cannot control who people are simply by tinkering with their genomes because we're so much more complicated than our genomes, we're so much more complicated than just gene environment interactions. Um, and so understanding that, understanding that we are much more complex human beings is first a very different than the understanding that we had during the American eugenics movement, which was a much simpler understanding of genetics and a wrong one, um, but it tells us that we have to understand that what we're talking about here is not determining the souls, as you put it, of individuals um, or the future. We're talking about some modifications which may have implications for how we think about who we are as people, but there's so much more to it than that.
3: So I'd answer that question differently, and I'd think about the soul or the values that we hold as a society. And I think to say that in those bad old days it was state-sponsored eugenics and now we have nothing to fear is really um, an oversimplification. First of all, I don't think we have grappled with the history of eugenics in this country, Um, and we need to, and I think you'd agree with that. And second, I think that um, there's another very powerful force in our society that's not government. It's corporate, it's commercial, it's the market. And I think we have to really think about how these technologies could play out if they're let loose in a society where market values are so uh, predominant, so it's not just about individual choice, it's about individual choice as you know, the markets um, shape it and channel it and influence it. And I, I think we are a society that makes advances, and, in, and that's in the social realm as well as in the technical realm. So as a society, I'd say we've made some important advances in recent decades um, on a number of Uh, parameters of equality. I think we have a long way to go in all of them, but we are much more um, tolerant about some and have moved past some unequal uh, problems with having to do with racial identity, having to do with gender, having to do with uh, sexual orientation. We've gone backwards, unfortunately, in terms of class equality. And I think that we don't, what we don't want to do is to put ourselves in a situation where this bright and shiny new technology, um, which has many, it's, it's not all genetic technology, I'm talking just about inheritable genetic modification, where th- through the promise of that we're going to find ourselves moving towards a, a, a world where we're exacerbating existing inequalities and maybe creating entirely new kinds. Um, hi, my name
2: is Amalia and I'm from Denver North High School. And, okay, so. Um, in one of my AP classes, they gave us an article about this, these two ladies that um, wanted to have a baby, but they wanted their baby to be deaf like them. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to know what your ethic of this was, and who gets to s- decide what's best for the child. Yeah, that's a great question, and it's a really, it's a really tough one. So it's one that I often present in in classes I teach on bioethics, which is it's not always the case that what what the rest of us think of as enhancement is what other communities will think of as enhancements. And um, whether it's deafness or, um, or height or, or stature, if you're within a community where that's what's embraced and that's what's considered um, valuable, it's really challenging to think, can you select for it? And, and, and already there are communities in which they're not just doing genetic modification to have somebody who's um, deaf, they're actually selecting between embryos for somebody who's deaf or for other kinds of traits. Um, I don't have an easy answer to that question, you know, I I go back to the individual choices by individuals um, and not interfering significantly with procreative liberties, but that that particular example troubles me and it troubles me in a number of ways, not the least of which it, it reveals to me my own biases about what I think a baseline of normal is. Um, and that's a really loaded word, normal or typical, because my definition isn't necessarily the right definition, and so I wouldn't want to be in the position of moral decision making for other people. So I worry about, um, about legislation which tries to make a decision as to what's typical or what's normal uh, for other people. I'd rather empower people to make individual choices that are best for themselves.
3: Yeah, it is a really good question. And on selection, I think we have to leave that to people, but we have to really think about it carefully. And that example is often used in a way that is um, really problematic for a lot of people in the disability rights movement who have really pioneered, um, I think, a lot of critical thinking about these selection technologies. And as they get more powerful, and as they pose questions about what kind of children do we want to you know, have in the world? And who, what, what kind of children does a child deserves to be born? Questions that, for people with disabilities, are often um, understood as, you shouldn't have been here. And that's, of course, a really horrible message. And um, so that's, it's a really active discussion in the disability rights movement in that particular case as well.
4: Thank you. Um, This actually I think ties a lot of this together Um, and I'll just take one second because we're talking about telling stories. This issue of what is healthy and what is normal. Um, I uh, had been working all my life in abortion rights Mm -hmm. and I got pregnant and I was very happy to be having babies and I had twins. This was 25 years ago and uh, my twins were born and at birth I am presented with a boy who's normal and a girl who has a very severe abnormality. She's missing part of a chromosome. She's the 35th documented case ever in the world. Very, very rare. I'm told, my husband and I are told, your daughter is going to be severely retarded. She'll never walk, talk or be potty trained. You really need to, this was in New York City, you need to go and really look at institutions and probably think of institutionalizing your daughter and take your healthy son home. Um, I'm just telling you this story because 25 years later, we didn't do that because the healthy part even for our son was like, how do we tell him 25 years later that we abandoned his his twin sister? What does that do for the psychology? Anyway, there is no doubt that I would have had no problem aborting had I had known that my daughter was going to have this. But I now know that my daughter not only bikes, swims, she's a cello player, she paints, she's sold painting, she can't talk very well, she's been, uh, you know, but she has empowered our, I mean, changed our lives. And this issue of what happens if on an individual basis we all start selecting out... Downs, autism, um, uh, severe retardation in the case of my daughter. What are we doing to the society ultimately? And that's where the, the issue of letting it be an individualistic decisions and, and then really looking at where we're going to go with society and this belief that we do, do actually hold um, diversity as a high, as something that actually empowers us all and, and in benefits all of society. I I feel like that's the piece that's missing in this discussion. We really have to look out many, many years, many generations, and would we actually be better as a society if we let individuals select out people that would be abnormal or not healthy?
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. Sounds like a question. Sure.
2: So first of all, thank you for being willing to share that story with us. It's a a very powerful example and a really helpful one for our conversation. I think that there's no doubt that there will be a number of people who will choose equipped with that information to terminate. Um, we already know, though, that there are a lot of people who equipped with that information choose not to terminate. Uh, and that number may change over time. We may end up with people who decide uh, that, um, you know, even minor abnormalities are not something that they're willing to carry on. Um, and it will shape society. I mean, a lot of things will shape society. This is one of them. And changing the diversity in the population is, I believe, inevitable. I believe it's gonna happen. I don't think it's gonna happen where you will see nobody with Downs being born or brought into the world or nobody with any of these different chromosomal atypicalities being brought into the world, but it will change. And we will celebrate different kinds of differences and different kinds of diversity rather than the diversities that we've celebrated in the past. But without a doubt, our society is changing and genetic technologies are gonna change it. And it's really worth us thinking carefully each individual needs to be given and empowered with the information. My husband and I went through genetic counseling with Um, Pregnancy to learn about different genetic testing that was available to us. Um, And, you know, it was very useful, even with my genetics background, to sit through an hour of genetic counseling um, and to be told, here's what we're testing for. Um, And when we're testing, uh, you should know that if it comes back positive, for example, for Downs, that there's a huge diversity of how that can affect a child, some of whom can be really. Functioning fully and enjoying life and some can be really severely functioning and so this doesn't guide or answer your decision While it may inform it. It isn't the answer for you. It's simply a step in making that choice
1: Marcy do you want to address that question?
3: So Just yeah, really briefly. I mean, I think that these questions about selection are so thorny and so weighty and um, you're right the technologies change society And it's funny that we don't have in our democracy any established mechanisms or really any tradition of grappling with the way that technologies will change society, even though they may change us as much as, you know, whoever is in the White House or a particular tax policy. We need that and we need the conversations and we need to be willing to think about it on a level that's not just individual, even though we have to also, of course, think about it on that level. But think about it in terms of the broader social trends and dynamics that we want to encourage or discourage. So that's where I hope we'll go with this conversation. Thank you.
0: That was Nita Farahani, Marcy Darnowski, and James Bennett, recorded live at the 2014 Aspen Ideas Festival. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and from across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. And while you're there, please take a few moments to rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues. You can follow the festival, at Aspen Ideas, on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.